Underlying mental health issues often go dismissed and unnoticed, both in sports and the greater society. As a student athlete herself, today's guest pursued sports psychology to help athletes recognize the signs of mental health issues specific to them. Listen to learn about how mental health and peak performance are directly correlated and how to seek the tools to maximize your potential. Hi, welcome to this episode of Bench. Thank you for tuning in. This is your host, Jules Makia, with our special guest today, Dr. Haley Hughes. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Hughes. Um, I would love if you gave a short background about yourself instead of me introducing you. I think you could explain how qualified you are. <laughs> sure. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, um, I have a background in sports psychology and general counseling psychology. Um, so, you know, I did my undergrad in psychology at Cornell, um, you know, finished graduate school in the U.S. as well at Purdue, um, getting my degree in counseling psychology with a specialization in sports psychology um, and have been a licensed, you know, counseling psychologist and sports psychologist for the past couple years. Um, you know, originally, you know, coming from Canada, but did all my degree in, in, in the U.S. and uh, stayed here ever since. Um, so now, uh, currently, I work in a private practice um, seeing individual athletes um, for issues related to mental health and sport performance, as well as I have and will hopefully continue to work at UNC, you know, part-time working with the athletics department there. Yes. So for those of you that don't know, um, Dr. Hughes was a four-year varsity athlete at Cornell. She played hockey, which is super awesome. You don't hear of a ton of hockey players here in America. So um, yes. <laughs> I would love to hear more about your experience as an athlete and how that shaped like what you wanted to do. And um, also just kind of starting with what was it like moving from Canada to the United States and then having to adjust with all of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, uh, you know, grew up in a hockey family, very stereotypically Canadian, I guess, you know, have two siblings, an older sibling and younger sibling, and we all played hockey. Um, and on some level, you know, playing in the U.S. in, in collegiate sports was very, um, you know, it was just a, a really big achievement. It was something we were all kind of striving for. You know, the Canadian programs were great, but they certainly didn't have as much money and prestige as the American programs did in, in collegiate sport. You know, when you think about college sports, you think about the U.S. Um, so, you know, that was a big part of the aim was, you know, to play in college. And and yet at the same time, I was also, you know, the first in my family kind of heading in that direction. You know, my brother was older than me, but he went kind of more the semi-pro, pro route. Um, so it was something I was navigating on my own. So to kind of navigate the, the college uh, piece on my own, you know, first generation college student. But on top of that, kind of leaving the country and figuring out how to navigate that, you know, was a lot. So I think a, a mix of, you know, even just the, the process related to hockey, you know, recruitment, what to look for, um, but also just in general, how to apply to college, what to look for in that realm, what to study, all those things that my family hadn't necessarily had to think about um, to then kind of be doing that, you know, so something my parents, you know, and my siblings were learning just at the same time as I was learning. Um, and I think in general, you know, you think about college sports in the U.S. and, it, you know, a lot of things come to mind, but I think 
it didn't become real until I got there of how important it was in the college sport realm to have this sense of prestige and what does your program look like and how much money does it have and what are the resources it has things you don't really think about until you're immersed in it and you know it's kind of overwhelming to be honest to think about all the responsibilities that you have as a student athlete so on some level I was enamored with this idea of like wow, I'm playing college sports, like that is so neat, while also saying like, how do I navigate this world, especially kind of, you know, being a bit away from home now. Two, I think at at the time, you know, there were a lot of Canadian hockey players in the Northeast at that point, right? Like hockey's not as common down South, but up up North and in the Northeast, especially pretty common. But even by the end of my program, there was a lot more Americans on our team than there was at the beginning. So it was, it was different, you know, exciting, but very different. Yeah. And along those lines too, like being a first gen in college is tough enough, but how was it going to such a tough university? I mean, you went to Cornell. So what was that like? Yes. (laughs) I think it was one of those things where I didn't know what I didn't know until it hit me in the face. Um, You know, I was a straight A student. I love school, you know, and and growing up, it, it was one of the things I was good at. You know, I didn't really have to, I mean, I had to study, I had to try, but it did come easily. Uh, That shifted very quickly in my first semester in college. And, um, you know, I kind of went into it thinking, you know, I'm decently smart, I can make this happen. Um, In that first semester, I walked away with a 1.8 GPA. So to go from being a straight A student in high school to suddenly being hit with the academic rigor of Cornell, um, a lot, I mean, and everything else with the transition, it was such a big adjustment for me, you know, and it took some time and eventually, you know, with the support of other people and also kind of figuring out my own way, was able to kind of perform in the, in what felt, um, uh, you know, what felt in line with my abilities. But man, that, that first semester and second semester was, was really, really tough. Because, um, you know, again, especially as a first-gen student, you know, it's not like I could call my parents and be like, what did you do during exam week, you know? How did you make this work with the balance of being an athlete and being a student? Um, you know, and they were as supportive as they could be, but there was a lot of, like, disconnect and, and barriers in terms of how do I navigate this when I've never watched somebody kind of go through it. I I was wondering too, like, what was your um, major path? Like, what'd you come in as? What did you want to do? And then how'd you kind of fall in line with psychology? Right. Yeah, I came in as a bio major. Um, I had it and, you know, I was a good student growing up. So I had in my head, okay, physician, that sounds like a, a reasonable career, right? Like a career path for somebody who gets decent grades. Well, again, that first semester, as I said, didn't go too well. Um, you know, and I just found that I wasn't I wasn't connecting with the classes I was taking. It was like some of it was interesting, but it wasn't until I started to take some more elective psychology classes that I really found myself wanting to engage with the material. Um, You know, I found myself, you know, even connecting with some professors and asking about other classes. So I kind of made the switch to psychology. I, I think it was my sophomore year. And, you know, I didn't look back at that point. We had some great classes in things related to abnormal psych, cognitive psych, psych and law, and just kind of trying to understand, you know, human behavior and the reasons why people do what they do. Um, you know, it's just something I really connected with. And, and thinking about just, you know, personally for me, I, I think one of the reasons I connected so much with that is, you know, I tended to be um, that harmonize, harmonizing mediator friend that other friends would kind of go to. And I would, you know, provide a lot of empathy and support and understanding. But I also was just, again, very interested and aware of, 
why people do what they do, why they feel the way they feel. So it kind of, at the time I didn't know that was clicking, but looking back, I think that just really clicked with the type of person that I was, with what I value and with what fit with my, you know, academic interests. Do you think your struggle as a student athlete impacted like your desire to work in sports psychology? Like what was your journey there? I I always had this background thought of like, you know, I would love to work with athletes. I'd love to stay connected to sports in general, just because, you know, I, I grew up an athlete. It's hard to let that go after a while. Um, and you know, as I was kind of going through my program, a natural part of becoming a therapist or a psychologist is you start to do your own exploration. You start to think about how things shaped your own life. And, and looking back, I, I, you know, there was so much more that became clear as I started to reflect on that and thinking about my adjustment. I mean, like I told you that, that 1.8 GPA probably should have been pretty shocking of like going from a straight A student to that. But I think at the time, I didn't see that as maybe an adjustment or, or mental health related concern. I just saw it as, well, well it's hard, right? Um, but looking back, I, I remember the first couple of years, especially having sleep issues, you know, having some tension in my chest, you know, seeing the school performance go down, um, avoiding certain things. And, you know, again, I was just kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm making it work. Um, and I even specifically remember, you know, going to our, our doc and being like, you know, my chest hurts. That's kind of weird. You know, maybe we should get that checked out. Um, and, you know, nothing coming back, which was a, a big relief. But I think looking back, the, the stress of, of trying to manage all of that was really kind of shining through. And I didn't even really know what was going on. So, you know, I think that really sparked my interest of like, how important it it would have been for me and my teammates to know you know what to look for to know what was available um to know what it means to again seek support and to know how to ask yeah kind of along those lines too i think it would be helpful for people listening to kind of explain the difference between between like general counseling sports psych like where are the overlaps where are the differences there Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a a psychologist in general, any kind of licensed mental health clinician, so that's somebody that's certified to work with mental health issues, any kind of licensed mental health clinician has a degree and the certification to be able to work with mental health issues. So that's, you know, you know, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, substance use, you know, those are counselors that kind of work with those mental health issues. Um, A sports psychologist is somebody who has specialized training to work with athletes. So this might mean a degree that's still in counseling, clinical, psych, or in sports psychology, but also includes things like additional classes, you know, related to physiology, sports medicine, kinesiology, um, and they also receive direct training and supervision in applying psychology to sport and exercise. Um, So that my approach would look, you know, different working with an athlete than it would with a non-athlete. I work with both, but it's different depending on, you know, what the presenting issue is. And how to know the difference too, right? Like what's the difference between a mental health issue that is presenting itself as a performance issue versus a performance issue that we can really tackle with some mental skills? Yeah, I think it's super interesting. Like not only did you specialize in this but you have a lot of personal experience. Do you think that that is also helpful relating to athletes? I kind of remember like when I would come to you and talk to you about issues, it was so helpful because you would sometimes share your experience and I could really connect with you that way. Have you found that to be helpful um, with your athletes? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's, in some ways it's invaluable, right? Like I think, I think on some level, I, it's not, 
100% necessary, right, for me to have gone through that experience to be able to help somebody. You know, there, if somebody comes in with a mental health issue I've never experienced, that doesn't mean that I can't help. But I think there's this level of understanding of just how um, intense the environment is and how intense the process is that if you're talking to somebody who gets it, there's a certain relief and trust and comfort that you know, you might not get from somebody who hasn't been through it. And, and I think what's so important about that, especially when we're working with underlying, you know, mental health issues that might be um, more prevalent than the sport performance piece, is if you can have that sense of, I trust you, you know, I trust your judgment, I'm, I'm comfortable with you, the therapeutic work is going to be so much more effective than if you come in feeling like this person's not going to understand me. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of discuss too, what are like different things that are pretty popular in sports performance right now? Like what are the mental health issues that are most common, um, kind of pre COVID and during COVID? Cause I know COVID has really thrown a wrench into everyone. Um, but what are like specifically, what are the ways that mental health impact, um, or impact sports performance? Right. I mean, it is, it's impossible to, you know, separate the link between mental health and physical health, right? Those are always going to impact each other. So things like, you know, anxiety, depression, disordered eating, adjustment issues, grief and loss, all of those things uh, are correlated to things like burnout, sleep issues, emotion regulation issues, you know, relationship conflict. And naturally that might lead to more, you know, tension, hypertension, coordination issues, you know, chronic fatigue, you know, higher heart rate and blood pressure, immune system issues, right? So when we list off all of those things, when we think of peak performance, that's certainly not the space that we want to be in, right? So, you know, I think there's this, um, there's absolutely this correlation of as we start to kind of um, struggle in terms of our mental health, that for sure is going to have an impact on our ability to perform and be present enough to learn new skills, to execute when we want to execute. And as we know, in, in athletics, it's all about reading and reacting. In, in a lot of sports, it's a lot about reading and reacting. And if even moments hesitation or uh, lack of focus can be the difference between winning and losing, between PRing and not PRing. So, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, the smallest differences can make a huge difference on, on um performance. So for example, there's evidence that shows uh, there's elevated risk of injury for people who are experiencing anxiety or depression, who are abusing alcohol or who have an eating disorder, right? So, and then if you have an injury that your psychological response to that injury could potentially exacerbate those issues and make them worse. And then on top of that, you know, if you're experiencing anxiety and depression and you're injured, uh, your rehab might look different. You might have prolonged issues with injury. So it just has this domino effect and this cyclical negative feedback effect of, now uh, increase mental health issues, increase performance issues, which increases mental health issues. And it's just kind of this cycle that if we don't intervene, if we don't kind of step in, it's going to be really hard to kind of um, come back from that. And, and I'll add too that remember, mental health exists on a spectrum, just like physical health. You, you know, you don't say you're 
just physically healthy if you're absent of disease, right? We try to be physically healthy by moving our body, by fueling our body, you know, doing the things that to make us kind of peak healthy. Same thing with mental health, right? Just because you don't have a mental health disorder yeah. doesn't mean you are thriving in terms of mental well-being. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to note too is like sometimes um people wait almost till it's too late. Yes. You know, you you don't you're not proactive or you kind of ignore the signs and I mm-hmm. think I'm uh, I'm guilty of this myself sure. of not taking care of myself or ignoring the issues and I think a lot of times athletes are so programmed to just push 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 yes. and ignore pain or or yep. any sort of I think I think that's something we've probably talked about of just like being more self-aware um but I wanted to chat too since you know this is a um a podcast geared more towards women what kind of mental health problems in athletes do you find are more unique or more prevalent amongst female athletes? And how do they kind of know there's an issue, how to seek help and like how to deal with whatever that might be? Yeah, you know, I think there are similar like mental health issues are similarly prevalent in athletes as they are in non-athletes. So we tend to see that there are around the same amount of mental health issues with athletes and non-athletes sometimes a little more with athletes you know and yet at the same time athletes are less likely to seek services so you know I think the one of the biggest things like you said is that awareness right so either you're experiencing them just as much if not more and seeking out less help and I mean I think that in itself should you know be scary to us that that's happening but in terms of women in particular um there are so many, I think, underlying layers and factors that contribute to that, including like what sport do you play? You know, is it individual? Is it a very aesthetic? You're on display sport. You know, how does that influence you versus a team sport, right? So, so we definitely see, just like in the regular population, and like higher levels of disordered eating and eating disorder and body image issues with female athletes. Um, that you know, mixed with the the female athlete triad that we talk about, you know, so issues related to eating with amenorrhea with um, you know, uh, you know, essentially, you know, osteopathic issues, you know, related to kind of bone density and that kind of thing. So overtraining that kind of comes with that. Um, we also tend to see, and this varies in studies, like a higher level of depression and anxiety with female athletes in general. Um, some of that could be reporting issues, right? Like men might not be reporting as much. Um, but you know, uh, I think one of the things that we typically see as well, um, and again, very similar to non-athletes, um, is that men tend to kind of manifest things externally. Like they externalize by, you know, doing things like going out and drinking and like very kind of external ways of, of coping with things, whereas women tend to kind of internalize more. So that means you know, are you ruminating about things? Are you, you know, yeah, sometimes we worry, but is that at the point where you can't stop thinking about it? You worry and worry and worry and there's no solution. Um, you know, so are there, are there things that kind of uh, are really kind of stuck and you're not able to kind of break free from? I think too, looking for the physical signs, right? Like, um, you know, chronic fatigue is, is something again that happens a lot for women and that might um, kind of manifest in that way. You know, for example, just one example I can think of, again, it manifests differently, but in ADHD, um, you know, a lot of clinicians see women kind of manifesting that and being really tired and exhausted from trying to kind of be concentrated all the time, whereas men tend to deny that it's an issue, right? So I think it's kind of thinking through like, what are the ways that this is kind of coming out for me? And I think for women in particular, that tends to be very internalizing. You know, it tends to be very um, 
overthinking, worrying, ruminating, um, and not being able to kind of break free from that. Um, so, you know, and again, that looks very different depending on other things, right? We can't talk about, you know, being a woman and that identity without talking about also, you know, being an athlete of color, you know, identifying as LGBTQ and how that impacts, you know, help seeking or how things manifest for you. So there's so many different layers to what that looks like. Ultimately, I think one piece you can really think about and what it comes down to is, you know, have I had drastic changes in what I'm able to do every day in my daily living? Is this getting in the way of my daily functioning, right? Am I seeking support less? You know, am I kind of shutting down? Am I, you know, having issues with sleep? Um, am I, again, internalizing, overthinking, ruminating? Um, and is this influencing what would be, you know, my performance level in school and sport and everything? Is Has that changed drastically since, you know, adjusting or since something happened? So, kind of a, a long-winded answer to say it depends. Um, I think there's two like paths we can go here. What sort of, you know, issues do you see with athletes that are around sports that, you know, for example, figure skating or gymnastics where beauty is literally a part of the sport versus how do athletes, for example, you know, rowers or soccer players or these strong, like, you know, I'm not saying gymnasts aren't strong because they are freakishly strong but um in a sport where you're deemed more like I hate using the word but like muscular or you know like not feminine what are the struggles you see um with athletes that deal with these different societal pressures or breaking societal barriers well and I kind of go I just the the phrase that always comes to mind is on display you know like you are in the sports that are about aesthetics and honestly like and get judged on aesthetics it's not just you have to look a certain way it's also your score will depend on how you look on you know in gymnastics what leo are you wearing you know and how do you um approach you know your floor routine and what does that look like right like so I, I think there's this inherent, like it's absolutely a microcosm for what we're seeing outside of sport where, you know, celebrating this femininity and this like strong woman, but not too strong, right? Like not too masculine, not too muscular. And this pressure, I mean, I think this, I, I tend to see a lot more performance anxiety and generalized anxiety in general in the sports that emphasize aesthetics and the way you look and your body type um that there's you know on top of sport performance i need to perform is i also need to present myself in a certain way and do i fit that mold you know and 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 what does that mean for me versus the sports that i think there's more of an acceptance right like of you know that kind of muscularity or masculinity that kind of comes with it um you know so i think there's this kind of you know, especially with something that you can't necessarily control, right? Like our body types and the way we look, like, you know, you can't necessarily change that. And yet then we see that lead to more issues relating to, you know, uh, diet culture, um, disordered eating and restrictive eating, um, you know, overtraining, you know, all these things that, you know, are kind of celebrated too, right? Like I, you know, how many hours you put in, how many hours of sleep that you get, you know, all of that stuff is kind of celebrated. And, and yet what what's, we see is kind of, or what we're told is a strength of pushing through pain end up become ends up becoming detrimental when we've hit that line where it's, it's no longer helpful. And, and I think that's true of, 
um, individual sports as well versus team sports, right? This pressure of it's you and the numbers, you know, and that's, that's it, you know, like, you know, with, with things like swimming and gymnastics and, um, you know, what are your PRs? Are you beating them? You know, if you're not, how do you measure success as an athlete? Um, versus a team sport that's kind of like, well, there's some individual statistics, but there's also this comfort and relief knowing that this is a team effort. You have, you know, five people all behind you ready to kind of, uh, to help, you know, whereas in the individual sports, it's, it's just you, you know, so that, that can look different depending on what the pressures of the sport are. Yeah. The next question I had was about the stigma regarding mental health, um, specifically in athletics. I absolutely am so grateful for sports medicine and sports psych at UNC, like Dr. Shannon, um, you, Dr. Carr, do a fantastic job of like trying to destigmatize mental health. And there's been a lot of panels and a lot of things um, to really open up the conversation. So I think things have shifted. But from your perspective, um, have things really shifted a lot? What do you still see um, regarding people seeking help? Right. Yeah. You know, and like we said, right, like the mental health issues are just as prevalent, if not more prevalent, but we're still seeing less student athletes reach out for help. So, you know, I, I, I absolutely think it's improving and, and maybe we'll kind of, you know, get to that. But I think there's a lot that goes into the stigma related to seeking help for a sport performance or mental health issue, right? Like what if coach finds out? How are they going to feel about that? Will that affect my role on my team? You know, will I get the playing time? Will I be able to compete? You know, how will my teammates view me? You know, at worst, you know, the sense of am I, am I weak? Am I not mentally tough if I can't deal with this issue on my own? You know, we're, like you mentioned earlier, we're always told to push through discomfort, you know, push through pain. If you're not suffering, you're not working right like all those things that kind of relate to physical pain you know then all of a sudden that strength of pushing through becomes again detrimental is now we're like well yeah like I'm sad and I can't sleep but whatever I'll just you know push through and deal with it and therapy is for people who have serious mental health issues it's not for people like me you know or you know I don't want to be seen as that kind of person right so I think there's this level of not only is there stigma in general about mental health, but also how is this going to impact how people view me, um, you know, as an athlete and as a capable person. And I, and I do believe it's shifting. We're seeing an increase in the numbers of athletes reaching out for help. Um, and, you know, as a result, we're also seeing, like I said, you know, an increase of providers, you know, being hired that are specific sports like people to work in athletics departments that are designated for that specific role. Um, so, you know, I absolutely see that shifting, but you know, that the stigma still remains, right? Like there's still an issue with athletes seeking help. And, and like you said, I do find that men's, uh, men athletes, uh, male athletes and men's teams are less likely to initiate contact. Um, they might need more maybe coaxing from coaches or trainers and more suggesting in that way. Um, I think, like you said, they're less likely to tell their teammates or refer their teammates. You know, if they are going, they're less likely, likely to be like, hey, this has been really helpful. You know, maybe that's something you should consider. I think that's particularly true in high profile teams. Um, so the teams that are kind of have more visibility on campus, you know, what's that going to mean for my reputation on campus, you know, as an athlete that needs that help. Um, but again, that also depends on the environment, right? And this is part of what you're talking about, about having panels and destigmatizing is do, do our coaches and administration encourage it as a resource, right? Do they talk about it? Is mental health discussed? And again, not in the way of like, 
you know, mental health disorders only, but the spectrum of what it means to, you know, be uh, mentally healthy or have a sense of well-being, right? Like, what does that look like? And is it normed by the leaders and the coach on the team to kind of seek help? So um, again, you know, men are less likely to seek help, I think, because of that standard of, you know, it's, it's not masculine, you know, it's not, um, I, I, it's goes against being independent and mentally tough. Right. Whereas I think women are socialized to be more accepting of that, uh, especially on a team of women, right. Versus a team of men. That's like, you know, has a lot of things to say about somebody who's going to be reaching out for help. We can't um, separate that from other identities, right? We know in particular that black athletes are even less likely to seek out um, help, both because of the fear of what that's going to mean for them on campus, for the will my provider really understand, you know, what I'm going through or pathologize, you know, my traumas and what I've experienced, um, but also less acceptance within their own community of of what help seeking is uh, means, you know, so there's so many layers to that of both a stigma of needing help, right? Um, You know, and am I going to get the help you know, that I, that I need or the understanding that I need. I think it's super interesting. You spoke about athletes of color, um, and how it's even harder for them to seek help. And that was something that actually was addressed around election time. Dr. Shannon specifically sent out an email saying they're making an effort to find providers of color, um, because it's not even just providers of color, but if you're an athlete of color at UNC, or I'm guessing this issue is probably way more widespread than UNC, um, you're going to have trouble finding someone who like, has actually dealt with the same things you have. Um, the athletic department at Carolina is overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. Um, so trying to just, even if it's not a sports psychologist or a psychologist, just trying to speak to somebody who has gone through the same issues as you, you're going to have trouble finding someone. So I think it's super interesting that you say that. And I'm glad things are changing, but I think there's a lot more work to be done. Um, for example, at UNC, we don't have um, a provider at color of color in the sports um, department. I know Dr. Shannon and Dr. Carr were working on um, coordinating with CAPS to find more providers of color, but I still think it's um, overwhelmingly white there as well. So it's hard to find those resources. And I think going back to what we were talking about earlier is it's so um, easy for an athlete to kind of work with another athlete for as like you, for example, because you understand our struggle. Um, I wish there were more providers of color that could really understand and sympathize with what's going on um, in our country and as a black person, like what that's like. Um, I'm not sure if there's any resources out there specifically for um, black athletes, but if you have any that you could think of or share books or websites or anything like that. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to share them. I think off the top of my head, I think a lot of, um, especially sports psych organizations are, are starting to hold, um, you know, forums, seminars, and put together resources for black student athletes in particular, um, you know, to really kind of make that a, uh, you know, available for students, especially like you said, given that, you know, if we know black athletes are less likely to seek out help for those reasons, then at at the very least, you know, starting with those resources while we're, you know, trying to build a more, um, you know, diverse staff that, you know, black athletes can feel more comfortable. And again, that's like we said, that's not to say that a white provider can't be helpful. It's, but it would be completely naive and unfair to deny that, 
you know, I might not be helpful. And so I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think there are some resources that, I mean, I think we can kind of share afterwards that would be really helpful for um, black student athletes in particular to kind of um, utilize. Yeah, we're planning to put together like a little resource list. So we'll be sure to um, include that as well. I think that would be great. Um, I uh, The next question is kind of like, what challenges are there? So for example, you know, you worked in the UNC athletic department, but then you're working with athletes is it challenging to kind of balance like you're on that admin side, but you're also trying to advocate for athletes? How does that work? Yeah, it is a big challenge. I think, um, you know, it's hard to, I mean, the boundaries get kind of blurred sometimes. And I think it's really important for a psychologist to know when to set those boundaries. So I think, you know, I have to say, you know, when an administration and coaching staff buys in, it is so much easier. When they buy into what we do, it makes it so much easier to know what are our roles, how do we approach this, and how do we consult, right? But I think because this is so new, people don't know how to kind of connect on this and where the boundaries are. So a lot of that is education on our part of like, hey, here's our role, here's where our role ends, here's what we can and can't do. So I find that, you know, sometimes there's a buy-in issue. Um, sometimes there's information that we just can't give that coaches and admin want to know. Um, and then it's also our role to figure out what information is helpful versus unnecessary or potentially hurtful for that athlete. And obviously knowing that it's confidential, right? But like, if given permission, what what does that look like to share that? And then what's best for the athlete's well-being, right? Sometimes, you know, being a collegiate athlete or competing is not in their best interest at that time. Um, so that's a really tough recommendation to make, um, you know, especially if you're a high profile athlete to a coach and an admin staff, you know, so I think there can be that those boundary crossing and those issues of what's best for this person versus the athlete, you know, and what does that look like? Plus, I mean, just time, you know, serving individual athletes while also communicating with coaches and admin, while also kind of destigmatizing and reaching out with, you know, psychoeducational resources, you know, you know, thinking even having, you know, two full-time people at UNC, which you guys do, um, is great, but serving the whole athletic population, like that's not enough. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know to Obviously, things constantly change in the sports world, in the psychology world. Is there any, like, interesting research that's being done or, or like, new information um, that you've come across in sports psychology? Yeah, um, I have to say in the, in the world of, of COVID and everything happening, it's, it's been really hard to be engaged. And that goes back to the time thing, right? To be engaged in the research world where it feels like I kind of, like, identify with and reflect on that feeling of not being able to do enough of I, I feel like I haven't been engaged enough in that realm. And yet, you know, I think very um, uh, salient and important right now is there's some research being done um, by the NCAA Sports Science Institute and some other programs on the impact of COVID on, you know, student athletes and seeing a rise in sleep issues in feelings of sadness and loss. Like I, it was one in 12 athletes feeling so depressed that they couldn't function constantly or most of the day, which when you think about that is, is massively impactful. And then, you know, 80% knowing, you know, where to seek medical help, but only 60, 55 to 60% knowing where to seek mental health help. Right. And this is during a very isolating time. And so I think there's a lot of information coming out that's, you know, do athletes know how to seek help, you know, and, and what is this, what is the short-term and long-term effects of something so isolating and scary and traumatic as, you know, a pandemic? Yeah. Talking, talking about you again, um, 
so obviously COVID, COVID has impacted a lot, but what has it been like to become a new mom during COVID not, and, and now having to balance being a new mom um, to your daughter and then also having to work from home? Like you had this huge, basically your life just got kind of switched around. What has that been like? How have you managed it? Um, yes. What has it, how has it impacted your career, um, COVID and having a daughter and has it even given you a new perspective being yeah. a mom? Yeah, I mean, so much with that. Like, and my head goes to how much time do you have for us to talk about that? Because, you know, <laughs> I, I use a lot of humor with myself because I call her my COVID baby because she was born right as things shut down. So right as things stopped, you know, and, and in my head at the time, I was like, okay, you know, like, we're not going anywhere anyway. Like, we just had a baby. But when they tell you those first, you know, couple months of survival, they truly are. And I think it was very salient that we didn't have help. You know, we, you know, my husband luckily was able to be home. He's usually traveling. But to not have visitors, right, to not have people to kind of help, you know, especially during this time that, you know, maternity leave, it's supposed to be like, okay, you know, bonding with your baby and getting started and, and getting settled. It became a very um, isolating time, you know, and, and we had each other. But of course, we're both sleep deprived. We're both struggling to kind of become new parents without, you know, the support. And then on top of that, you know, the disconnection in general, you know, my family's back in Canada. Um, and so, you know, when everything shut down, nobody could come, you know, so, you know, my mom had her flights booked, I'm ready to help you out. And, and that just didn't happen. When you think about that, right, it's like, I, I think the impact of that can be pretty drastic. You know, I, I, there are days where it's a lot tougher than others. And, you know, and I think it's a reminder that, you know, even though I work in this field, that doesn't mean I'm immune to, to stress and the isolation and disconnection that comes with something as um, impactful as a pandemic and what that means for uh, the support that you have. I mean, that's why I, that's truly I have a much better understanding of it takes a village to raise a child because, you know, doing it alone is and, and again, we're not alone in the sense that we don't have any support, but there's a certain sense of support that you get from being able to be together um, that's different than connecting over social media or, you know, through FaceTime or something like that. Um, you know, and then, you know, coming back to work and that all being online. I've been very happy, actually pleasantly surprised with being able to continue my career through telehealth. And I have to say, um, hopefully our field, I mean, I think the perspective I'm at now, you know, given nine months of this, is I'm really starting to try to be hopeful about how this is going to change things, right? Like access to mental health um, resources if you're not able to get in person. And what does that, you know, what does that mean? Um, how this will change because of the, I mean, we always knew social media use was uh, an issue. I think this is really, really getting people to the end where they're like, you know, where we're hitting a point where something's got to give, right? So I, I think this is really starting to shed light on really important issues that hopefully will have a positive impact. Um, but, you know, I think for me in particular, like we talk all the time about balance, you know, like how are we balancing? And I, I think it's a realization that having a perfect level balance just isn't, you know, it's not attainable. Um, and, you know, I was an athlete, a high achiever. Being a new mom really brought that out for me of, you know, I had this in my mind of like, okay, I know people tell you it's hard, you know, but you'll figure it out. Right. And then you're like, oh no, this is hard. <laughs> like, you know, this challenges you in so many different ways of, 
you know, having a career while being a parent and trying to feel like you're on top of all of it, you know? So I think for me, it's coming back to a lot of the stuff that I work with, the folks that I work with on is, am I controlling, you know, what I can? Am I coming back to my supports when I need it? You know, am I recognizing the red flags of, I need some me time and I need to, you know, so the basics of self-care, you know, while also, you know, really, really diving into, you know, how do I know when things are kind of getting, you know, worse? And so I think, and I, again, another silver lining is my husband usually travels. He was supposed to be gone for like a whole month, 10 days after she was born, but COVID has allowed us to be together, you know? So I'm also very grateful for being able to have a job, you know, despite COVID having, you know, my husband home to help care for our child. Um, so, you know, it's just goes to show that that, work on flexibility, compassion, um, you know, being able to have uh, coping strategies that, that it never ends, you know, that thinking ahead to how much of a blessing and a curse it is to know what I know, right? For on, on one hand to know what are the, what are the environment that, what is the environment that will really help her thrive and how can I try my best to create that while also thinking through, well, if she competes in this sport, this is really tough, but if she competes in that sport, you know, she might have issues with this of you could really, you know, drive yourself crazy trying to think through all of that. So I think, you know, I, I had a, this really rings true now. I had a professor of mine that said, all you need is to be a good enough parent. And I didn't get it at the time. I was kind of like, oh, okay, like, what does that mean? But now I understand that, again, that comes to a place of we try to do everything for our children and be, you know, perfect. Um, and, you know, as long as you can provide support and love and warmth and structure, I mean, the rest you don't really have as much control over. So I'm doing my best to do that. And some days are easier than others, but it has, you know, given me a really a, a different perspective on what it means to raise a, a, a woman and, and what that looks like. Yeah. Um, final question wrapping up um, and feel free to add anything after that, that you want to discuss, but um, when you were a, a collegiate athlete, did you know the resources that were available, if there were any, um, regarding mental health? And what advice would you give to current student athletes that may or may not be struggling with mental health, but may or may not be around other athletes that are, and um, how to access resources and stuff like that? Yeah, we, I mean, I, I knew of like our CAPS at Cornell. We didn't have a designated person. I knew of CAPS, but I, again, I didn't have a sense of what even, what would even, uh, what would I need to be going through to seek help, right? So that in itself. So no, I would say I wasn't aware of resources. I think one of the biggest things is starting off by talking to somebody you trust within the athletics department, whether that's a teammate, a coach, a trainer, um, an admin person that's kind of separate because if they they usually have networks to get you connected and if they don't you know they have somebody else that they can go do to get you connected and I'm sure you know a piece of that is that they can do it discreetly right so I think talking to somebody you trust is always a great place to start and knowing that these things are confidential right that you're going to have an awareness of what's told to your coaches versus what's not and you know and where those boundaries are starting with somebody you trust and kind of letting the the dominoes kind of fall from there is a, is a big piece of that yeah no thanks so much for coming and thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of bench this is your host jules makia with our wonderful guest dr hughes thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule as a working new mom 
want to share your story, whether you prefer to share on a podcast, in a video, on a panel, or in a written blog, we cannot wait to hear from you. Just go to uncutchapelhill.com, that is uncutchapelhill.com, click get involved, and then share your story. Amplifying your voice has never been so easy.